you're, you're, let's say you're a father who makes some money but doesn't give a shit about your kids, like, day to day. Hey, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Elliot. And I'm Audrey. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get to know who they really were. Exactly. And, might I say, we happen to be the 453rd most popular comedy podcast in America. This is true. This week. This week, yeah. Those, the charts are flexible, malleable. Cracking the top 500, though. We did, yeah. We're coming for you, Joe Rogan. So who's our hero this week? So we have a listener request for our hero this week. And, um... The request was, can you do an artist? And originally I thought, okay, yes, I can do an artist. I studied art history in college. I've done a number of artists, but who should I do? The listener suggested Da Vinci. And I went and did some preliminary research and realized while Leonardo Da Vinci was a weird dude, he does not have quite the same scandals as this week's hero, who was notoriously awful interesting because i i think i've heard of this person but not familiar with anything awful well this week's hero is salvador dali what do you know about dali uh i know he is the melty clocks guy okay well that was my next question can you describe any of his art (laughs) yes i'm sure people have seen this at least this one um Mm -hmm. What's it called? It's like something about persistence of memory. That is that is exactly what it's called. That's the title, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has all these clocks melting over the trees in the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he he was a surrealist. He had a mustache. But we're rapidly approaching the limits. Okay. <laughs> the mustache is like last gasp there. Sure. Well, I mean, he's very well known for having a mustache. It was an integral part of his persona. So... You fell right into his trap. I did. I did. I fell fell into the trap. (laughs) Okay. Well, before we get started, I wanted to cite some sources here. I got a lot of information from an article in the Baltimore Sun, obviously Wikipedia, a bit from biography.com, and a really good article from uh, Vice. But back to Dali. So here's where we begin. It's Catalonia, 1904. Some folks are familiar with Catalonia, but it's this autonomous region in the northeastern corner of Spain. There have been, there's been some political uh, tension between Spain and Catalonia in recent years. So, um, Is it currently autonomous? According to the internet. Okay. Yes. I did not do a lot of research into Catalonia. I just um, did a quick Google. Okay. Make sure I knew where it was. Yep. And that's about it. <laughs> okay. So Dali was born on May 11th. And this is the part where we can just go ahead and skip the bullshit where you pretend you don't like this part (laughs) and get to it anyway. It's time for Audrey's Astrology Corner. Tauruses born on May 11th are brilliant, talented, and somewhat unstable. Few people have the creative potential that is the gift of these individuals. Despite a reputation for being short-tempered, even critical, they command the loyalty and devotion of everyone who knows them are also known to have very thin pencil mustaches <laughs> that they twirl nefariously. It's a little on the nose. <laughs> very much. So something that's very interesting about Dali 
is that he was born nine months after his older brother, who was also named Salvador, died. Wait, what? He had an older brother named Salvador. Yes. His father is named Salvador. Okay. But he has his older brother, and he dies. Nine months later, Salvador Dali, the one we're talking about, is born. So, so wait, so they have this child who dies, and then they decide to name the next kid the exact same name? Yes, and this becomes a little bit of the mythos of Dali that he creates for himself. I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but here's a little spoiler. Dali believed that his older brother had to die in order for him to have been born, the second Dali, as the creative genius he considered himself to be. Wait, like he like killed him and like consumed his essence or something (laughs) he the way he talked about it is so bizarre kind of thought of this older brother as like the prequel like the first version and uh the the lesser evolved of the two brothers and in order to like make space for this evolution the second coming of dali the genius dali his his three-year-old older brother had to die jesus okay so wait and the kid's three Yes. When okay. Mm-hmm. But then there's this gap, and then our Salvador Dali is born mm-hmm. nine as, months later as the second coming of Dali. Indeed, he's born to a middle class lawyer and notary. I know his name. Yes. <laughs> uh, the older Dali was an atheist and a Catalan Federalist. He's very strict. And had very firm beliefs and was sort of unyielding. The second coming, Dali, was um, not one who enjoyed that sort of boundary. And often went to his mother, who was much gentler and, um, I would say, a bit of an enabler at times. But she is the one who encouraged his artistic endeavors She uh, placated his tantrums and sort of maybe because she also felt sad about the loss of the first Salvador, coddled Dali to a certain degree. Okay. Yeah, I could see I could see uh, giving in, spoiling this child a little bit. Okay. Right. So he butts up against his he like rebels against his strict father and is sort of like coddled by his mother. He shows enough proclivity as an artist when he's a child that his family sends him to art school when he's 12, and by 14, he was exhibiting his charcoal drawings and some paintings. His father supported this work. It wasn't like, no son of mine will be an artist. It was like, well, I guess my son's an artist, and he's pretty good at it. So here's his art. Okay. At 16, so this is 1920 at this point, Dolly's mother dies, and this devastates him. He said, quote, it was the greatest blow I had experienced in my life. I worshipped her. I could not resign myself to the loss of a being on whom I counted to make invisible the unavoidable blemishes of my soul. That's deep. After the mother dies, Salvador, the father, at the request of the mother, marries her sister. Wait, at the request of the mother? Yes. So this was not that uncommon at the time. Okay, that's true. What year are we talking? Um, This is 1920. Okay. This was my grandmother's family story. So my great-grandfather had a wife. She died. He, had, he was left with two small children, or three small children. And so out of convenience, he married her sister. They ended up having two more kids. But my, my grandma had 
cousin siblings. If oh, that makes sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so their moms were sisters, but yes. they were siblings. Okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that unusual. It Do- is pretty convenient, you gotta admit. Right. Dolly was said to, like, not necessarily love it, but he didn't resent it. He liked his aunt well enough, and he's almost out of the house at this point. I mean, if it's the 20s, you're, you're, let's say you're a father who makes some money but doesn't give a shit about your kids, like, day to day. <laughs> I could see how in the days before online dating, you're like, where am I going to find a new wife? Be like, well, <laughs> got one lined up right here. Right, right. Worked out for everybody. Indeed. So Dali is 16. His mom's dead. He's sad. Now he's got this aunt slash mom. And so he moves to Madrid. He's like, I'm fucking done with this. I'm going to go to art school. He's studying at the San Fernando Royal Academy of Fine Arts. And of this time, so he gets eccentric. He's an eccentric character. But of this time, he is the ultimate caricature of an artist. He wears clothing from like 50 years before. He like Wait, has, so he's dressed up in like, like 18, yes. 1800s mm-hmm. get up. Mm-hmm. God, fucking hipsters. Yes, I not. It's exactly like that. It's like, oh, cool. So you've seen Newsies? Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> it's like, he is Wait, wearing... but he's living the time of Newsies. Right. But... Modern day folks who look like they dress like from Newsies. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. <laughs> he apparently has this um, strange intonation and peculiar way of speaking. He is starting to grow his mustache. God, I think we've all met these people before. You have. He's he is like very scrawny, almost like um, wiry, right? So he has long hair. He was described as wearing clothes that looked like he was a dandy. Um, and if you look at pictures from that time, even as a child, because he's only like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, he has got. The goosiest motherfucking eyes you have ever seen. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean the goosiest eyes? They're wild. You can tell that this man is either performing the part of being unhinged or legitimately unhinged. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> so he's like, he's the art school cliche mm-hmm. and he's also like maybe a little bit unhinged. Right. Right. Or acting unhinged. Either way. Which is pretty unhinged. Mm-hmm. It's early 20s. World War One has just ended. Art Deco is sort of the ethos of art and design. Um, the vibe, if you will. The big movement of the time, Cubism, was still kind of lingering around certain art circles. But really what's on its way in is Dadaism. And it's starting to pick up steam in Paris and other cultural hotspots in Europe. Brief bit of context for folks who are not familiar, and because it is hands down my absolute favorite art movement, here's what Dadaism is. It was developed in reaction to World War I. The Dada movement consisted of artists who rejected logic and reason uh, and the aesthetic of modern capitalism. Uh, instead, it's really focused on nonsense, irrationality, the anti-bourgeoisie protest of the scene. Um and it is, if you like modern day memes, yeah, like absurdist you, memes, yes. you like Dadaism. Yeah. So anytime you hit this like extreme of post-war. Um, or pre-war. Yes. <laughs> pre-war, uh, just despair and like nothing matters. Mm-hmm. The, the absurdist, the absurdist offspring of that gives you something like surreal memes or 
Dada. Yeah, Dadaism. And it tends to be very performative. It's, you know, there's some art created, but a lot of it, the purpose is to only create the art in the moment, and that's all it is. Right? So, like, ripping up pieces of paper on stage, letting it fall where it may, that's the art. And then sweeping it off the stage, that's the art. Like, the the whole bit is, like, nothing is art, everything's art, but wackier yes anyway so while at school dali is starting to gain some attention as a well-known artist he's one of the only artists who is attempting cubism which is still kind of lingering around in madrid but honestly he's really bad at it he is like a shit (laughs) cubist he is much better at other styles of art he quickly moves on to more avant-garde circles as he becomes more well-known he meets folks who are in the dada movement uh, Jan Arp, Marcel Duchamp, who I guess we'll probably get to eventually on this podcast, but um, and he starts befriending them, moving into the circles. In the early twenties, he's introduced to some big happening cats around Madrid and Paris, and he's also reading a ton of Freud at this time. Oh, Mr. Mr. Freud. Mm-hmm. So put a pin in that because as you'll see, it comes up over and over and over again in his art. And if you haven't already, listeners, now would be a very good time to go back and listen to the Freud episode so that you can understand why an obsession with Freud would be problematic for a young man. If you don't have time to go back and listen to the whole episode right now, I would say the... TLDR version of Freud is imagine if somebody decided that psychology was just about wanting to have sex with your mom and then did a bunch of coke. Yeah. That's basically all of Freud. Yeah, I said it was problematic because of the falsified data and the cocaine-induced obsession with eel gonads. Yes, falsified data meaning like <laughs> he said it helped people and it never actually helped anybody. He never actually succeeded in curing any patients. But he was pretty fixated on the the parental sex. And the eel gonads. That was a fun diversion. All that is a roundabout way to get to the point where eventually the two worlds, hanging out with happening cats and Freud psychology, overlap. That happens in 1926 when Dali is 22 and he finds himself among a group of artists who we now call the Surrealists. Too long didn't read version of Surrealism. The, the Surrealists were a group of writers, poets, artists, eccentrics, etc. They championed an art and literature based on Freud's psychoanalytic writings and advocated, quote, tapping into the irrational world of dreams and hallucinations as a way of transforming society. Yeah, uh, hallucinations, not a great basis for societal <laughs> transformation, it turns out. Not not ideal. But respect the effort. This is actually like an organized group of people who they're collaborating, they're workshopping, they're developing exercises that lots of writers and artists still use today to suss out <laughs> their deepest fears and subconscious minds. It's that like real artist shit. Yes, you know, yes. Right? And it's also just simply the worst idea. (laughs) (laughs) They believed that the willful and amoral unconscious drives that are described by Freud were the universal engines of human motivation. And so 
the Surrealists and Dali in particular aim to represent these subconscious truths. And truths is a loose word there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in a way that was, quote, unmediated by the artificial constraints of civilization. What do you deeply want deep down in your deepest caveman mm-hmm. brain and and then like just go and manifest that self? Right. It's this, It's a very strange dichotomy between using your subconscious to, quote, transform society, but also not believing the concept of civilization exists. Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> a little out there. In retrospect, they might have been trying a little too hard. <laughs> I feel like you say that about a lot of people in this story. <laughs> but based on these ideas, Dali, in his early 20s, starts to create increasingly sexual and innuendo-charged pieces of art. By the late 1920s, he has established himself as a surrealist with a capital S, like a surrealist. And his work is getting a ton of attention. He's starting to accumulate a body of work that has three major themes that come up over and over again. And those themes, represented by a number of different symbols throughout, but those themes include death, violence, and sex. All three of these, at some point in his life, are preoccupations. And these preoccupations date all the way back to his childhood. So first off, his brother's dead. <laughs> yes. He absorbs the the life force. <laughs> the life force. Uh, he never met his brother, but he created a bunch of art to symbolize who his brother was and like the gift that his brother gave him to celebrate the genius that was Dali himself. Yeah, just to think that this this does anything to do with you is just like <laughs> such a starting point. Right, and that it wasn't just gastroenteritis. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, his mother's death comes up time and time again. At one point, he tries to make this allegorical painting of his mother that's titled I Happily Spit on the Grave of My Dead Mother or something like that. Oh, what? Yeah, and his father's like, I'm sorry, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, appropriately. <laughs> and Dolly was like, no, it's a metaphor for the Catholic Church. And his dad was like, no, fuck you. <laughs> you are, I. you no longer get an inheritance. You're disowned. Oh, for this painting. Yes. <laughs> too far. I'm sure, I am sure at that point, he had pushed the limit one too many times. I am sure that yeah. up to that point, his father was like, okay. That's not quite the line. That's not quite the line. <laughs> but when you're spitting on your dead mom, that's the one. Happily. Happily. Then this concept of violence appears in a number of allegorical and symbolic images throughout Dali's work. And this started young as well. It's well documented that he had major outbursts and tantrums that resulted in violence against his immediate family. And from a Vice article called, quote, It's really surreal how Dali was a fascist who hit women. His early childhood <laughs> violence is documented. <laughs> yes, yes. At And from this article, it says, At age five, Dali writes in his autobiography that he pushed a boy off a high suspension bridge. At six, he premeditated a terrible kick to his three-year-old sister's head, quote, as though it had been a ball. And this was not simply childish, not knowing better. There's baseless cruelty to people and animals that happen throughout Dali's childhood. One of the signs of a potential serial killer. Right, right. It's one of the, like, three things, right? Continuing from this article, often it seemed he cultivated admiration only to become disgusted by those he sought it from. So for five years as a teen, 
He teased a girl who he was in love with. He excited her with kisses and touching, but then refused to give her anything more. Parentheses. Vaginas are scary! Exclamation point. When he was 29... Wait, wait, what, what? We'll come back to that. I want to finish this paragraph from the Vice article. Okay. When he was 29, he, quote, trampled a girl who remarked on the beauty of his bare feet. Quote, so true that I found her insistence on this matter stupid. He trampled her until his companions, quote, had to tear her, bleeding from my clutches. Wait, what the heck? Yeah, so we'll come back to the violence in a bit, but let's touch on that vaginas are scary part. Yeah. I know that probably piqued a lot of folks' interest. When he was a young boy, Dali's father tried to teach him about sex by sharing with him an informational pamphlet that contained graphic images of, they say vaginas, but it was vulva. The outside of a vagina is called a vulva, for folks who are curious, that contained graphic images of vulva affected by venereal disease. Oh, yikes. Yes. I, I'm doing air quotes for venereal disease because it's not an appropriate way to talk about sexually transmitted infections. Sure. Contem- like in, con- contemporarily, right now. Yeah. But it's to emphasize how Dali thought about vaginas for the rest of his life. Got Diseased. It. Okay. Okay. As such, a significant portion of his work is dedicated to his legitimate, literal, actual fear of vaginas. And he perpetuated this idea that they're dirty and frightening and the theme of impotence comes up throughout his lifetime. Really struggled when it came to heterosexual intercourse. He explicitly uh, stated in his autobiography that he feared female genitalia. Like actual fear. Yes. Just like deep, like deeply ingrained in him as a child, just this irrational. Yes. He purportedly was a virgin until he met his muse, the only woman that lots of folks think he ever had sex with. Although he did enjoy hosting orgies where he participated strictly as a voyeur. So So it wasn't sex. Just watch. Yes. He just did. He, and he says this, preferred to masturbate in front of a mirror. Wow. And listen, I'm not going to yuck anybody's yum, but that is <laughs> a I'm weird gonna, flex. I'm going to yuck that saying. That's disgusting <laughs> even just to think about. I mean, I don't want to sex shame anybody. It's just, that's like such a strange detail to put in your autobiography. Like He put this in the autobiography. Yes. 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 Repeatedly. He wow. talked about his preferred sex act was masturbating in front of a mirror. He, like, loved himself. Yeah, I mean, the mirror, the mirror component is, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a bit much. So speaking of his muse, Gala, which is, I think, how you pronounce her name, G-A-L-A. It's a nickname. She is actually Russian and has a much harder pronounce, much harder to pronounce Russian name. So I'm going to say Gala. She is well known as Dali's most significant partner and muse. When he's 25, 1929, he meets Gala, who is a Russian immigrant, 10 years his senior. And at the time, she was the wife of another capital S surrealist, Paul Eluard. At first, it appears that there was sort of this consensual non-monogamy happening, as was the, like, style of surrealist. Okay. It's part of the group thing? 
yeah, it's um, it's not like they're like, hey, go out, free love, have sex with everybody. But it was sort of like, none of this is real. Um, act on your desires. And so there was an implicit understanding amongst a, a lot of surrealism that... Uh, have sex with who you want. A lot of it, yes. <laughs> At first, they're having this sort of relationship. They talk about it. Dali and Gala both talk about it as being this spiritual, intellectual, artistic connection that is this driving force between them um, because it certainly was not the sex. Oh, yeah, I guess not. I guess not. And so she's still married, but not for long because she leaves Eluard for Dali pretty quickly. This is the time in Dali's life when his fame and notoriety really start to pick up. And a lot of folks credit Gala with that propulsion into superstardom because she had, while he had the quote-unquote genius Mm -hmm. and he was making the rounds, he was becoming well-known. She had this insatiable drive to have his name out there, to put his work out there. She too thought he was a genius. She loved being his muse. Wanted him to be a star. Yes. By all accounts, Gala was both insufferable and insatiable. (laughs) Okay. Nobody liked her, and she wanted everything and everybody. I can see why nobody liked her, yes. Right. Upon meeting uh, Dali for the first time, they're getting to talking, whatever, whatever. There's some attraction. He says, what do you want from me? And she says, I want you to kill me. And, like, that's how it starts off. So she is this enigmatic character there is no shortage of literature written about Dali or Gala. Go read it, folks. This episode, <laughs> more so than any other episode I have ever done, is abbreviated. The amount of absolute tomfoolery that <laughs> Dali and Gala got into over, you know, the whatever 50 years they were together, that could be 10. 20 episodes. They're both just absolutely wild. Okay. So what are some examples? What do they, what do they get themselves into? Some examples of the shady and bizarre shit that he did throughout his fame and his, you know, adult life. He would go to fancy restaurants, ring up a huge bill, and then refuse to pay it. Instead, he would get out his checkbook and draw a picture on it. And then would, when the restaurant would be like, sir, what? No, you have to pay for this. He would just like look at the poor waiter in his eyes and deadass just say like, what do you think is more valuable? The food you just served me or this painting by Salvador Dali? God, what a dick bag. Right. Yes. Yes. So can you just imagine being the restaurant manager? <laughs> yeah. and they're like, oh, fuck. Okay. So we have to comp table 47. <laughs> and it's like um, hundreds of dollars. Like, did they did they bounce? Oh, no. He's still sitting there. Mm-hmm. He's super rich, too. Yeah, he's just he, being a fucking asshole. He gives no shits. He really believes he's above all this. He also, it, come to find out, throughout his career, he was flooding the market by signing blank sheets of paper that he would then sell to other artists to put on their art they would sell the art and then give him a profit so he's making money for his signature and his fake art that someone else is selling he's he's literally he has cornered the market in salvador dali fakes yes by by running with it yeah so right he would sign these sheets of paper and then like the fakers could 
print. Did whatever they wanted, yeah, yes. Seemingly verifi- verifiable imitations of his paintings or paintings they made. <laughs> he did not give a shit. Nothing mattered. Yeah, what the hell? His art was sacred only to the extent that it was um, a reflection or like a reinforcement that he was amazing and incredible. And if people would pay for just his signature, it's not even his art. It's his signature. It's like they're paying for me. Like, they just want something to be mine. Like, that is so valuable to him. He was a very grade-A narcissist. God, just sounds insufferable. All that is to say, we're not going to talk a lot about Dali's art in this episode. Because you can go find it online. He, But this is the time in his life when he is creating his most infamous works. A lot of people want to be able to separate the artist from the art. And in a lot of cases, that is entirely or at least to a certain degree possible. If you go back and listen to the Degas episode, the Gauguin episode, Picasso to a certain extent, there's some like objectivity to their art and their craft, um, but not fucking Dali. Back from that Vice article, quote, with Dali, an openly obnoxious man who willfully claimed necrophilia, cruelty to animals and people, fascism, self-obsession, and greed. To separate the artist from the art seems particularly egregious. Wait, necrophilia? It's a lot to unpack. I'm trying to trying to weave a story here. We're going to get you're just drunk. You're just throwing (laughs) these things out. Like, oh, ignore the necrophilia over there. We'll get to that later. (laughs) Sorry, you got my attention. I'm telling you, there's just so much to unbundle, and it's all happening all at once. Like there, you like Dali's art is Dali the artist. Dali is not like, oh, here's my one painting about death. Here's my other painting about my impotence. Here's a third painting about necrophilia. He's like, no, here is a painting called uh, Skull Being Sodomized by a Piano. It's all of it. (laughs) (laughs) And he's creating it at this time. Got it. Got it. And so it's hard to sort of parse out Dali from the art that he's creating. If you go look at his art, independent of me describing it right now, what you see on the page is Dali's inner self. You just have to be able to unpack the symbolism. It's around the time that he marries Gala that he creates the persistence of memory, sometimes known as soft clocks or melting clocks, as you referenced earlier. Critics would describe this as a piece that on its surface is about time and mortality and Dali's own self-consciousness. Dali, however, would describe it as, quote, the giant Dalinian DNA molecules which constitute the factors of eternity. That means nothing. It means nothing. No. (laughs) So to the extent that it is his most inner self, it's also just absolute fucking nonsense. Yeah, I mean, clearly. uh, Yeah, it seems to be a pattern, a pattern for him, for sure. Right. Some part of me wants to believe that this nonsense is a deflection because he is talking or painting about really uncomfortable, shame-filled ideas. We could spend literally days, like I said, unpacking the symbolism in his work and what it was supposed to reflect, you know, re his subconscious and the unbearable, what is it? Um, the mortifying experience of... No, it's the the mortifying 
ordeal of being known? Yes. Right. Yes. Dali is the original mortifying experience of being known. Yes. <laughs> but the thing to keep in mind when you see a Dali is that the work is not uh, separate from the character. He's not painting a bowl of fruit or a still life. He is rather flamboyantly and enthusiastically putting out into the world his most shameful <laughs> erratic self. But as a melting clock. Mm-hmm. As a melting clock. Back to the 1930s. He's married Gala. They're having sex sometimes. She's having sex with lots of people all the time. Oh, because, that, yeah, that's the thing they do. That's mm-hmm. true. And shit is really picking up politically in Europe. Yeah, it's a, it's a busy time for political politics. Uh, for European politics. <laughs> you want to say that again? No. Okay, I'll leave that part in. The Surrealists, capital S, who were at this point a decade-old codified group of artists, uh, and it was this exclusive collective of artists that you had to be welcomed in. There were, I don't want to say bylaws, but there were norms, had a very similar, they all shared a very similar worldview. And one of those very particular worldviews that they shared is we as a group, denounce fascism. To which Dali was like, oh, no, thank you. I do not. Oh, I, I want to be a fascist? Dali thought that the surrealist movement should be apolitical. He thought that the movement, capital S Surrealist, should be capable of creating art without any political influence. And other people in the Surrealist group were like, yo, dude, some of our dicks work. Like, we don't want to just keep creating <laughs> art about our impotence. We have fears subconsciously and very consciously about fascism. And we would like to create art about that. Instead of doing that, Dali starts to create a lot of art about Hitler. And oh. he says most of it is a parody or even, like, criticism of Hitler. Art historians looking back are like, that seems suspicious. Yeah, it seems like it's just a lot of paintings about Hitler. And surrealists at the time were like, you are a fucking liar. You are clearly a Hitler sympathizer. You are explicitly a supporter of Francisco Franco, who was the fascist ruler of Spain at the time. Dali called Francisco Franco... Quote, the greatest hero of Spain. So, yeah, he, he doesn't sound too hard on the fascists. No. Franco, for context, uh, endorsed the idea, liked concentration camps, and he himself was responsible for upwards of 400,000 deaths. Because of this, in 1934, so at this point, Dali is 30. I just wanted you to take a moment. Think about when you were 30. And think about... The chaos that this motherfucker has had in his life. <laughs> Before 30. Imagine what that does to you. I mean, I imagine it ages you pretty quick. Ah, oh, I can't even imagine. Just thinking about that amount, the amount of chaos that Dali created in the first 30 years of his life is really unimaginable to me. But anyway, by 1934, a number of other surrealists have had it with his bullshit. And they're like, endorsing fascism is the last straw. So they held a trial 
in which they debated whether or not to expel Dali from the Surrealist. And he ended up just like squeaking by, by whatever committee vote you get to stay in the Surrealist. He's also very famous and very profitable already at this time. Yeah, it's crazy that, that one, that they have like, they're voting people off the island. They have like a process <laughs> to do this. I know. Um, this collective that doesn't believe in civilization yeah, is holding right? this trial. Yeah. But then, of course, like the people with money don't get kicked out. Right. And Dali, being the absolute fucking dick that he was, after narrowly avoiding being expelled, he said, quote, the difference between the surrealist and me is that I am a surrealist. That's, I mean, that's pretty cold. His inclusion in this group, however, was short-lived after that. That's <laughs> pretty insulting, yes. <laughs> By 1939, so five years later, he is doing even more chaotic nonsense. He is, of course, continuing to create art and exhibit, but he is also becoming erratic and eccentric in his personal life. You know, he at this point now has the big mustache, a cape he wears everywhere, a cane. He has a pet ocelot, which is a wild cat. Yeah, yeah, like a little leopard type thing. Mm -hmm. He brings this everywhere. (laughs) So he's carrying around this like exotic animal. He's got a cane. He does not have a limp or anything. He's just walking with an ocelot and a cane wearing a cape. Yep, yep. Checks out. Mm-hmm. He's hanging out with Coco Chanel. He ends up meeting Freud, which is a dream come true. Oh, I imagine. I imagine. Freud called him, quote, a bit of a fanatic. Yes, that's what he is. Mm-hmm. And Dali loved that. Biggest compliment of his life. Oh, yeah. Couldn't course. believe it. So those are like two of our heroes from this podcast that we've talked about. He goes on to make movies a few years later with Hitchcock and Disney. So he's like making the rounds. He is a well-known person. At this point, the hardcore surrealists cannot handle it anymore. They think he's selling out. He is promoting fascism. He has an illegal wild animal that he brings to their meetings. I don't know. (laughs) It's just a lot. Yes. And so in the May issue of the 1939 Surrealist magazine, Minotaur announced Dali's expulsion from the Surrealist group, claiming that, quote, Dali had espoused race war and that the over-refinement of his paranoiac critical method was a repudiation of Surrealist automatism. Boo. Yeah, what? Yeah. At this time, they also sort of like coined this derogatory nickname, Avida Dolas. It's uh, Avida Dollars, which is an anagram for Salvador Dali. And it also means, like, avid for dollars. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. And so he's, like, selling out. And surrealism as a movement ends up selling out pretty hardcore. It's one of the most well-known movements. Some of the artists are some of the most well-known artists. For for whatever reason they want to, like, shy away from fame or selling out, it doesn't actually really stop them. It's pretty performative. But Dali is just too much for them. Dali ends up fleeing Europe in 1940 as the war is picking up. He moves to the United States for a few years. And he is an immediate celebrity among celebrities. Cannot get enough. Goes from wearing a cape to uh, taking that shit way too far. At one point, he shows up at an exhibition dressed in a wetsuit. In a wetsuit. Yes. And... 
in some series of events trying to get the wetsuit off, he almost suffocates. (laughs) (laughs) So he like really almost dies because he wears this wetsuit. Critics and intellectuals find him largely disgusting. Not only this like weird public persona that he is playing up, but also his art is featuring concepts that they're uncomfortable with. Like we mentioned, the necrophilia. There's a lot of excrement that gets introduced into his art around this time. Inappropriate sexual relations with a number of symbolic mother-like figures. Yeah, yeah. In the art. Super Freud, super Mm -hmm. Freudish. Yeah, and like, but no one, critics can be like, this dude sucks. But he's already kicked out of the Surrealists. He's making shit tons of money. Nobody really holds him accountable. But in 1944, George Orwell actually wrote an essay titled Benefit of Clergy, Some Notes on Salvador Dali. And the title referred to Orwell's perception that Dali's talent or perceived talent made him uh, above reproach. Orwell explained Quote, if Shakespeare returned to the earth tomorrow and it were found that his favorite recreation was raping little girls in railway carriages. Wait, what the fuck? We should not tell him to go ahead with it on the ground that he might write another King Lear. One ought to be able to hold one's head simultaneously the two facts that Dali is a good droughtsman and a disgusting human being. Wait. Are, is he saying that Dolly's uh, quote-unquote genius just excuses all this shit? No, he's saying he doesn't understand why his genius is excusing the fact that Dali is reprehensibly or is behaving reprehensibly. Got it. Okay. Okay. I was actually talking to my dad about Dali and doing this episode, and he said he remembers in the 60s and 70s Dali's art really picking up. And my dad's an artist. He paints and was has always been. But he also remembers stories from his like young childhood. Dali making newspaper headlines for just partying wildly with celebrity in celebrity circles. He's good friends with Man Ray. He's doing a whole bunch of shady shit just all across the country. He's living in California and New York and bouncing around. Gala is with him. N- nobody in America likes her either. Yeah, I mean I I got the sense. Yeah. He's hosting all these voyeur orgies. Again, go for it. <laughs> but it was uh, a notable thing that he did that was public knowledge, which is a lot more than I can say for the voyeur orgies that I have hosted. Yeah, exactly. Just be discreet, right? Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's <laughs> the goal of a voyeur orgy. Discreet. The war ends. Dali and Gala return to Catalonia. He continues making art throughout, like I said, 60s, 70s. But around 1980, he develops tremors and symptoms that are similar to Parkinson's. This sidetracks his ability to create art. Although he's too weak to paint, he's not too weak to beat the ever-loving shit out of his 86-year-old wife. Wait, what? Mm Mm-hmm. So Gala, even at 86 still has an insatiable lust for life and young lovers and is lavishing them with gifts. Oh, my. Spending Dali's money. He's 76 at this point, feeling kind of sick. She's not around. She's, like, literally out with her young lovers. Multiple young lovers at 86. Mm-hmm. Gotta hand it to her. Way to I keep know. in shape. She's pretty hot. You'll have to look her up. But he finds out 
He beats her so badly, he breaks two of her ribs. And after that, Gala essentially is like, yo, I'm too old for this shit. We're done. And they kind of live separate lives. She only lives another year. And this kind of devastates him that the last year of her life was spent estranged. But I mean, like, fuck you. Fuck you, dude. Yeah, she's 86 and you broke her ribs. I don't know what to tell you. A few years later, he's 80. Couple weird things happen and his bed catches on fire. He ends up with second and third degree burns over almost 20% of his body. A nurse finds him on fire, pulls him out of the bed, gets a fire F- out. Finds him on fire. Mm-hmm. Tries to resuscitate him, make sure he's breathing. But instead of being like, thank you, I was on fire and I'm not very mobile. That was helpful. I appreciate the CPR. <laughs> He's like, fuck you, bitch. I hope you die. He's like screaming obscenities at her. What? Yes. Eventually, his nurses refer to him as the invalid from hell, which is a terrible term. Don't use the term invalid in 2020. (laughs) But he was so abusive. So he was, after being caught on fire and in his 80s, he was confined to a better wheelchair. I, I don't know if it's like for the fun of it. Or for spite, or because he's just, like, lacking certain faculties at this point. But he would, like, deliberately shit himself all the time. Wait, intentionally? Yes. Oh, my God. And then berate the nurses as they're cleaning him up. It's, like, real full circle to whatever childhood drama he had, it feels like. Yikes. It's, like, trauma, all of it exorcised in his art, and then living it again. Oh, rough. Eventually, he gets really sick and he refuses to eat. They give him a feeding tube, gets infected, ends up dying of pneumonia in 1989 at the age of 84. I'm surprised they didn't just light his bed on fire and not help him the second time. <laughs> like, fuck you. Fine. Go for it. Do it yourself then. Right. Right. So for the fascism, the violence, the animal cruelty, which we didn't even get to, and the audacity, Salvador Dali is not my hero. Yeah, I 100% agree. God, just what a nightmare. It was almost impossible to put this episode together in a coherent way. So I'm sorry, listeners, if this is your intro to Meet Your Heroes, and it seems erratic. It is because Dali's life is so erratic that having a flowing narrative where he did anything that wasn't just out of control from the time he was a child incredibly difficult to do definitely felt that way and i would not oh man can you just imagine having to deal with him like on a day-to-day basis i mean one of his most famous quotes is like i wake up every day grateful that i am salvador dali or like i thank god i mean he was an atheist well he was like an agnostic catholic is how he described himself (laughs) which feels like not a thing again but he he just like so grateful to be himself, but also self-flagellated in every single painting ever. You know, I guess is like the core of a narcissist personality. Deep, yeah. deep insecurity and inferiority complex, I guess. I don't know. I think I'm the shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, draw your innermost fears. Uh, plummeting to my death. <laughs> there you go. In an elevator. Yikes. No, thank you. Elevator specifically. Meh. Any any plummeting to my death, really. 
elevator seems like they don't, don't have to, can't see the ground coming at you, which seems like it's kind of an advantage. Well, now I'm going to think about that every time I'm in an <laughs> elevator, not knowing how far the ground is below me. <laughs> Anyway, so if you think that I'm also the shit, and this podcast is the shit, uh, where can folks find us? They should rate and review exactly where they're listening now. Apple Podcasts helps, especially. They can find us on the social media, Instagram or Twitter, at Your Heroes Pod, or the website, meetyourheroespodcast.com. And until next week. Don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.